0: Next Sunday is your last week to drop off your go-bag donations, so if you took a go-bag, bring it back. Next week, agape dinners are tonight, and everybody's talking about, whoop. Yeah! Somebody's excited. So uh, they are tonight. Uh, don't forget that uh, to grab an, ad, if you weren't here last week, grab an Advent book. Tomorrow starts the readings. Uh, and if you if you don't make it to an agape meal today or something like that, uh, get a chance, maybe go through with your family and read the anticipation of season. It starts on page 18. This is kind of what we want our GCs to, to go through and talk about today at the meals. Uh, there's some questions in there maybe you could do with your family. Kind of gives you a good focus to start out the Advent season. And then tomorrow you start those daily devotions to go through it. If you, again, you didn't get one, they'll be on the communion tables throughout the room. So grab an Advent booklet and go through this. So the entire... All of us, all of Elements on the same page, going through the same stuff. It's going to be awesome. Uh, also, Christmas for Kids, don't forget that, still in the back as well. And uh, we still have Star Wars tickets. I know last week it was like, Star Wars, oh, I totally forgot it. Still there. We're going we're gonna to have tickets all the way up through the 20th of December. Uh, but if we don't have any that day when you show up and want some, sorry, you're the slacker, not us. Uh, but grab one if you want some. And again, like I keep saying, buy an extra one for a friend, invite somebody to come with you, uh, to meet all the crazy people that go to Element and be like, I never want to go to that church. Someone hit me in the face with a lightsaber. What's up with that? He said, cause it's awesome! I think that's, that's I got. cause I got, I got, do have a lot to get through my message. I say that a lot, but I really mean it today. Why don't you stay on the Arena God's Word? It's Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, and it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Sounds very epic, doesn't it? Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you so much for being a God who has rescued and redeemed us, that gives us the strength to live the life that you call us to live. And God, I know that there are so many things in this world and our media that tries to convince us that you are not as powerful as you are. And yet I ask today you would remind us of the greatness and the goodness of you, and we would live in that. Amen. Have a seat. Alright, so this is our last week in our series of Legends of the Fall. Uh, you've been looking at all the bad guys and bad stories in the Bible. It's coming you know, out of the summer series where it was all happy and joyful and all the happy stories. Now it's all the... Bad stories. Today we're going to talk about someone that uh, everybody misinterprets and misrepresents. We're going to talk about the devil. And I know, as soon as I say the devil, you got like cheesy 80 rock music in your head. You're going to hell with the devil, right? And you're like shout at the devil. Yeah. <laughs> Sympathy. Pleased to meet you. Can you guess my name? Right? I should write that down. I told you. i write that. Sympathy. No. All right. Uh, it, it's kind of funny to me that we talk about Satan right before we go into the Advent season and talk about the birth of Jesus, but I really have a monumental task today because uh, I've got to fight against an entire uh, televised movie culture that tries to get you to think one way about the devil, which is totally different than he really is. I mean, you've got, you got scary movies and cartoons and and TV shows and and, and just crazy movies, that, and the list goes on forever about this, and I've got to fight against that. I've also got to fight against the Christian sub. Subculture that tells you all these things about the devil that aren't necessarily true as well. I'm going to give you a lot of information today, get a lot of slides and a lot of pictures. I don't really have the devil's story because it's not actually really told in the scriptures. So I'm just going to give you a lot of stuff. We're going to come together and work out of here, hopefully trusting Jesus more and realizing the devil is like a toothless lion that wants to gum you to death. But it's just gumming, so we can get over that. I'm going to take a biblical approach, talk about a little bit of history and some truth. Uh, We're not going to do a hyper-emotional, hanky-to-the-forehead, exorcist-type freak-out. Okay. Oh, my goodness. I'm on a roll, right? Yeah, we're just going. Um, and, And in the end, you're going to realize you are a lot more like Satan than Jesus. You're welcome. You're welcome. So... The the truth is what is found in the scriptures. And so we always have to read the scriptures. And the scripture teaches that we are in the war with an invisible spiritual enemy. And when you're in a war, the one thing you want to do is win, right? You want to to win. But you have to understand, the scriptures tell you the victory has already been won for you. This is why we trust Jesus in the midst of this battle and this fight, because Jesus has won. And I will tell you this, that we believe because the scripture teaches that Satan and the devil is actually real. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Get your first real glimpse of him in Genesis 3 when he comes as a serpent. Genesis is easy to find. First book in the Bible, third chapter, can't miss it. Unless you've got a Gideon Bible, then you don't get it at all, but whatever. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, and and stay there, because we'll come back to this in just a second. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So there you see he comes as a serpent in the book of Revelation. You see him as a dragon, and not until Revelation are those two things actually put together. Revelation 12, 9 says, And the great dragon was thrown down that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. These are poetic images that represent Satan and what he is and what he does. The serpent is poetic and it's also literal. A serpent has the ability to inflict death by its bite. It injects venom when it gets a hold of you with the simplicity of its mouth. It brings paralysis. It can bring death. And that perspective would not have been lost upon the original readers and hear of the Genesis narrative. The point of what it's telling you is that the serpent is more crafty, he is more shrewd, he is smarter than all other creatures in creation, and that includes you. And you may think, I don't think so, I don't even believe in the devil. You just prove my point right there, okay? You just prove my point. He sees himself as being at war with God, he sneaks into creation in an attempt to get man and the woman enlisted in his war, in his futile fight against God. The Apostle Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, he talks about needing to forgive because when we don't forgive, he says Satan comes in and he has these schemes and he works on our hearts so we don't forgive. That he's always pushing us in ways that he uses designs and these schemes to make us think things about him that are not actually true. The word is design. It is schemes. He has those. So we must listen to God so we are not outwitted by him. We are born into a war. Satan's attempt is to get you to participate in his rebellion against God, and we call this sin. In Genesis 3.1, he goes on, and he said, so he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, we looked at this in the first week of Legends of the Fall. Is that what God said? No. Oh, my goodness. You've already been deceived by the schemes. No. No, that's not what God said. No. Satan phrases the question in a way that makes Eve start to question the goodness of who God is. This is like growing up. And maybe one of your friends came and said, oh, you know, my dad said, no, I can't go do that. And you respond with, did he really say no or did he say he didn't want you to? Because those are two different things. He didn't want you to. That's That was just me. Me and my friends were like Satan. Okay. That's... That's, that's what we did growing up. And so the, Satan, the S- Satan and the serpent asks Eve the first question in human history. And Eve loses focus, like we talked about the first week of this, on all the good that God had provided. She gets fixated on the one thing that she was not supposed to have. It's just like us. God has given us so much freedom in our lives, and yet we get focused on those few things that want to destroy us. God said to them, You may eat from any tree in the garden. That's what God Said The man and the woman, they could enjoy everything. They're simply instructed to trust God that he knew what was good in all things. And that seems like the course of our lives today. Because Satan is very good at getting us involved in his schemes. He's very good at it. And why is he good at it? Number one, he's smarter than us. The scriptures tell us that. And secondly, he's spent more time doing it than you can possibly imagine. He is very experienced. He sees himself as a bitter enemy of God. So we must be careful. That should give you a little bit of pause in this. And there are a lot of people who have got a lot of different ideas about how to combat this. If you go to Amazon, you type in spiritual warfare, you will get thousands and thousands of titles on the subject. If you type into Google spiritual warfare, you will get 1,790,000 pages. If you type in the devil, you will get 247 million page hits in 0.38 seconds. It's Crazy And Satan has a strategy, has a scheme in this war. That is to get you to think about him anything but the truth. Randy Alcorn wrote a book called Lord Falgren's Letters. It's like a modern take on C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters. He got an older demon instructing a younger demon how to do his work better. And this is what he says to him. He says, we can benefit immensely from any view of us but the true one. Any view but the true one. And today there are many views that are not true. From he doesn't exist, to he's all-powerful and all-knowing, to he's really weak, to, oh, he just got a bum rap like every crackhead in jail. Oh, it's not really my fault, I just got a bum rap. There's even a show coming out on Fox in January called Lucifer. And it's how, it's just Lucifer's job, but he doesn't really want to do that. He doesn't really, he's, he's just misunderstood. The poor guy. Poor Lucifer. Guys, there are no spells, no incantations to capture demons. There are not hidden codes in the Bible of how to draw your magic symbols. It's all voodoo. It is dumb and it keeps people in bondage because they do not walk in the truth. The truth is that Satan has a name. His name is Lucifer. The word Satan is used in the Bible as a term for adversary, for accuser, for somebody who wants to stab you in the back because it's what he does. It's kind of like his job description. There are other people in the scriptures who that same word is actually used for. King David. In 1 Samuel 29 verse 4, David is hiding out among the Philistines, the people he fought for a very long time. And the Philistines are going to go out to battle. David says, I'll go with you. And all the guys going to battle are like, don't take David with us. Are you kidding me? This is what they say. They say, send the man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down "...with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us." The word adversary is the word Satan. He'll become Satan to us. He will stab us in the back and he will kill us. I mean, so it's a title of what he does. Just like Jesus is called Christ, it's not his last name. It's not like Mary and Joseph Christ and they had their baby Jesus. Hey? It's, it's a title. Lucifer is called a Satan. It's a title for what he does. Well, what about the devil? Well, the devil is another title. It means slanderer, which actually comes from the Greek translation of Satan, this word diabolos. Oh, don't say that in church, diabolos, oh my goodness. You know, the, the word Satan is used 18 times in the Old Testament, 14 of those are in the book of Job. Uh, it's used 36 times in the New Testament, and whose enemy is he Really? Satan is not God's great enemy. It's not this cosmic struggle of God and Satan and they're so powerful and they're duking it out. Satan is like a gnat, like a buzzing fly in God's ear. In the book of Job, Satan is Job's adversary. He is not God's adversary. This means Satan is our enemy. He is our enemy. So we've got to wise up because in movies he tries to convince you he is all powerful. He is not all powerful. He cannot read your mind. Although I do believe he can put some thoughts there. What does he actually do? Matthew 16:23 tells you he works against the followers of Christ. Luke 22 verse 31 says he wants to test you. Second Corinthians 11:14, Revelation 20, verses seven and eight, says he masquerades as an angel of light for his purposes. Mark four, Luke 8 verse Thessalonians two says he opposes the truth of Christ and t- tries to snatch away the planted seed of the gospel when it is spoken. But we are also told throughout the scriptures that he is defeated. He has no authority over a Christian because the Holy Spirit lives in you. John, apostle of Jesus, best friend of Jesus, reinforces this to his readers. In 1 John 4, 4, he says, You want to assure the believers that they need not fear Satan or his forces, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. In Luke 10, verse 18, he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What that is, he has no power. He has no authority. He fell like lightning from heaven. But all he wants to do is get you to think that he is not defeated. Now, what does he actually look like? Because he's very good at hiding his appearance. And so, you know, we don't have like TMZ following him around, taking candid pictures of Satan on the street. Ooh, today Satan went and did this, right? So you don't have that. So what, what does he look like? Well, here's a picture. Okay? Okay. Here's a picture. Uh, Most scholars believe he is or was an angel, uh, and and he fell from heaven. Though, to be honest, and this may freak you out a little bit, the scriptures never explicitly state that. It's just something that most commentators actually believe. He is created by God. You see that in Genesis 3, verse 1. He's probably one of the most beautiful creatures ever made, because Lucifer means light bearer. And so he's probably looks more like this than anything else that you've seen. He sounds pretty amazing. So how did we get what we have today? Uh, Charles Panati, he wrote write a book called Sacred Origin of Profound Things. And he writes, in the early Middle Ages, Pan was the horn god of some Greeks, and also seen as the horn concert of the, of the goddess. That's the mother goddess. Later, he was given additional attributes a long serpentine tail with a heart shaped tip, long claw like fingernails, the leathery wings of a bat, and a trident. And when Christianity starts going into these lands and spreading the gospel to these people, this idea of Pan and this paganism held people in fear. And so they saw this creature as the one thing that they had to fight against the most, and they started to relate it to Satan. And this is where you get this. That's where you get that. B.G. Walker writes this. He says, In the Middle Ages, many of the attributes of the Greek god Pan were absorbed by Satan. So what does that mean? Goat hooves, horns, and unremitting lust. sometimes also a goat head, an attendant throng of satires. Because they saw this as their greatest adversary, their greatest enemy enemy. Now you had this whole throng of satires around him from this time, and they became demons. This picture right here is artist' representation. It was called Satan in Council. And so this view started to go about. And because we have a tendency to run to the bizarre attributes of language like serpent, get mixed together with this Middle Age and Greek folklore, eventually the Catholic Church in those Middle Ages started calling any other religious practice Satanism. So anything that wasn't Christianity was considered Satanism. and is that true? Yes and no. It depends on how you actually want to define it. So, how do we get what we have today? Because we think, oh, we're not like those weirdos in the Middle Ages. We, we know so much more than they do. I could show you today clip after clip of TVs and movies that all misrepresent Satan, right? And I love scary movies as much as the next guy. I love sitting down and turn the lights off and be like, ooh, 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 ooh. I love it. It's so much fun. But you've got to remember, they are all fiction. They are fiction. And even when I point that out, I usually get someone that says to me, oh, no, 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 I had a friend, or I know somebody who knew somebody, and they were in this country, and this thing happened, and I'm like, I'm not saying that can't happen, okay? But I'm just saying, ah, I kind of question that, right? Just, just, just a little bit. In movies, people who follow Jesus, they're usually too weak to do anything. And so you need to call in people who are demonologists, and they come in and do incantations and sprinkle holy water and spells and voodoo, because, hey, that's got to be way more powerful than faith, Right? But that's what they do in movies. So how did we get here? If you go back about 60 years, almost all of these ideas of Satan, they're almost all dead. And out of nowhere, this this whole thing just jumps up into the forefront of culture. You get this major jump in Satanic interest. And when you look at it, it kind of goes back to the 19th and 20th century spiritism, communication with the dead and stuff like that. Uh, There's a book called Satanic Panic, The Rise of a Contemporary Legend. And they trace... All of this, that this whole demon thing in our culture and how it came about. So this is how it kind of goes about. 1965, there's a guy named Anton Zander LeVay, and he founds the Church of Satan. The media goes crazy, oh my goodness, Church of Satan's, ah! Now, if you, if you understand this, the Church of Satan doesn't actually view Satan like the biblical Satan. They're not reading the Bible and going, oh yes, Satan. What, what it is, what they worship is really the ideal of do whatever you want to do. That is the Church of Satan. You know what America worships at? The Church of Satan. You know what a lot of people call themselves Christians worship at? The Church of Satan. It's just like, do whatever you want to do. It doesn't matter what God says, do what you want to do. That, according to Anton Xander Levay, is the premise of the Church of Satan. You're welcome. Yep, that's how it works. In 1968, he comes out with the Satanic Bible. Again, newspapers and tabloids, they just kind of go crazy. Newspapers show pictures of his black mask which, like a mask, which is like a Catholic mask, but way more creepy and sexual and weird. In 1968, this movie comes out called Rosemary's Baby. <sighs> oh, my, I saw This movie's horrible. All right, okay. This is, this is where Satan makes a demon baby with a lady. Okay? It's like, is that in the Bible? People are like, oh, yeah, it's in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. Okay? <laughs> it is not in the Bible be careful don't fall in love with Satan or get Satan raped because you may have a Satan baby oh my goodness that's just horrible I saw in the weekly world news at the checkout stand it's got to be true it's not true it's not true 1973 this movie The The Exorcist comes out you got this little girl girl named uh, Reagan she's got strange markings and head turning and crazy things with crosses and green projectile vomit guys look I caught malaria when I was in Thailand and I had green projectile vomit (laughs) It doesn't mean I was possessed. Or does it? <laughs> in 1976, this book comes out called Hostage to the Devil. It's by a Jesuit priest called Malachi Martin. It fans in, into the flame this whole exorcism scare. Uh, Michael Cuneo, he wrote this book and he went and interviewed all of these people that knew uh, Malachi Martin. And he said the people who knew him best said he had a remarkable talent for fabrication and embellishment, for converting by literary sleight of hand half-truths and innuendo into, into immutable facts of history. So he's taking stories and little things he's heard and making them into this book. Also in 1976, you get the world's most famous demonologist to this point named Ed Lorraine Warren, whose story becomes known as the Amityville Horror. It's like, oh yeah, I heard about that. Uh, This movie Annabelle just came out last year. That's like the precursor to that. Uh, There is this house where multiple murders took place and so they started to call it a hellmouth. It's a place of intense demonic activity. So they conducted televised seances. There's a media... Frenzy. The Warrens, they go on to make different movies called like Ghost Hunters and the Haunted. And they showed this demonic activity where demons would scratch and claw people. They are the ones who brought back the the middle-aged idea of these things called Incubi, who were sexual demons who would rape women and pleasure men. Funny how that works, by the way, right? I wonder who thought that up. Some dude. In 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 1983, uh, psychiatrist M. Scott Peck comes out with his book called People of the Lie*. Like, always, oh, it's a psychiatrist. Oh, it's it's got to be real. He talks about how exorcism is heroic. It saved a lot of his patients. But Peck said his views were influenced by the movie The Exorcist and also by the book Hostage to the Devil. And then as time goes on, these things just get farther and farther into culture, and you get things that will now come up in the X-Files, or movies like The Omen, or modern horror, things like The Grudge, or Devil's Do or... Uh, American Horror Story, you know, things like that, TV shows like Supernatural, Constantine, even Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where the entire town is built on top of a hellmouth where demons come out. And what's worse is that as these things go into culture, the church began to be influenced by these views. People stop thinking biblically and they start thinking emotionally. And the sad thing happens where Christians stop being cultural change agents and they are become cultural conformists. And we start to just reflect the culture around us. In the twentieth early 20th century, Freud blamed all of our current problems, physical, mental, emotional, on our past traumatic experiences. Freud said, if you have a malady, you have a problem in your life, it goes back to some traumatic thing. Even if you don't know what it is or you can't find it, it's got to be there because that's how it worked. Well, the church came in with this spiritism and blame and it all came together. And they did kind of the same thing that Freud did. They blamed everything on the devil. It's all the devil's fault. All the devil's fault. And we still do this today. And when things, when things get hard in our lives, we say, oh, the enemy's fighting against me, or it wouldn't be this hard. Because sometimes God puts hard things into our lives to make us grow through it. Not everything is meant to be easy. Thinking easy things are from Jesus and hard things are from the devil, that is horrible, horrible theology. You can go down to the spearmint rhino and see a naked girl for a cover charge. That is not from Jesus. Even though it's easy, it's not from Jesus. Okay. In the 80s and 90s, what happens, the church got so freaked out by culture that we have what people are now look back and they call the great Satanism scare. A kind of like, oh, the Salem witch trials were so horrible. We did it again. We did it again. There's this vast rumor of international, multi-generational, almost undetectable Satanic conspiracies. Is described in a lot of books like Michelle Remembers or Satan's Underground or The Satan Cellar, all of which are shown not to be true. And yet Christians and I bought a couple of these books and read them. Like that's pretty freaky, you know. And and you read them; they're flying off the shelves because Christians blurred the line between what God says and what Hollywood portrays. We gave Satan way too much power in this battle. Malcolm McGrath, in his book *Demons in the Modern World*, wrote this: unsubstantiated, sensational, personal testimonies fostered an unprecedented period of criminal prosecution, psychiatric institutionalization, and family disintegration. Anybody remember this thing called the McMartin preschool? Yeah, yeah. you know what. All not true. All a hoax. Yet people are up on trial. People are like, we need to kill these people. We need to get rid of these people. And today, a lot of churches still live in that mode. Christians will only sometimes think emotionally and get sucked into many schemes. Any many schemes. The fascination with demons and culture has led to this gigantic thing called the deliverance movement within Christianity. Michael Cuneo, in his book, American Exorcism, says it's a great scheme. He says, Whatever one's personal problems, depression, anxiety, substance addiction, or runaway sexual appetite, there are exorcism ministries available today that will happily claim expertise for dealing with it, with a significant bonus, moreover, that one is not, for the most part, held personally responsible for the problem. Indwelling demons are mainly to blame, and getting rid of them is the key to moral and psychological redemption. It's not my fault the devil made me do that thing. That's what we say. Remember a guy named Bob Larson? This guy named Bob Larson had a radio talk show for a really long time. He'd say things like, oh, demons can trigger hundreds of fire alarms at once. And I'm like thinking, my buddies and I did that in college. You know, I mean, (laughs) we can do that. He says, well, they can materialize weapons out of, out of thin air. They can tamper with cause, car brakes. They can cause earthquakes registering, registering 5.0 on the Richter scale. He has a book called In the Name of Satan, and he talks about how a girl was impregnated by a demon of Incubi, and, had to, and they had to sit around and pray that Satan's unnatural for, uh, fetus be aborted. I'm thinking, now, if you're pro-life, what do you do with that one? Right? Hmm... Right, Neil Anderson writes a book called The Bondage Breakers, and he talks about how oh, there's breeders out there, and they're and they're breeding these kids for satanic sacrifice. And I'm not saying that maybe there isn't somebody out there doing that, but it's not nearly like what he talks about in the book. He warns that Satanists meet from midnight to 3 a.m. When it happens, I think Eastern or Pacific, you know, because <laughs> you know if it's like if it's like Eastern, okay, I can go to that meeting at 9 p.m. and get home by midnight. I'd be okay with that. But maybe it's midnight, midnight, my time. I don't know. Right? Whatever. Okay. Uh, he says if you get woken up between those hours, you've probably been visited by a demon. He says that 85% of Christians are involved in some type of satanic bondage. So basically all of you, sorry, you guys, we're sweet, we're good, we're golden. The rest of you, sorry, sorry. And ideas like this have led to people, Christians in the church, believing that we need to be delivered from demons, that we can be possessed by demons. When the truth of the scriptures state that believers cannot be possessed by demons. That's all Hollywood and it is all Hype. So you gotta look at the, what the scriptures actually say. Can a Christian be possessed by a demon? Well, no. But then it also possessed can mean three different things. So let me walk you th- through these things with the Bible. She says possess can mean own. Okay, possess can mean own. So can a Christian belong to Satan? No. Thanks, three of you get it. Okay? The rest of you, no. Know the answer is no. John 10, 28 and 29, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Okay? Possessed can also mean dominate. Can a Christian be controlled by demon or Satan? The answer to that is No. No. Jesus himself cancels out that type of possession in Matthew twelve, twenty-five to twenty-nine. But can a non believer be dominated? Yes, yes. Matthew twelve, forty three to forty five, Jesus says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but it finds none. Then it says, I will return from my ha- uh- Return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of the person is worse than the first. The point is the person is unoccupied. Okay? They are unoccupied. If you're unoccupied, you leave yourself open to being occupied. Occupied. Okay? Our house is Christ's home. Jesus lives there. Satan so can find no place in you. The third thing is that possess can mean influence. They can also use the word oppression. Can a Christian be influenced? The answer to that is yes. Yes, very much so, very much so. John 10.10 10 says Satan tries to steal, kill, and destroy. Satan tries to tempt Jesus in this way in Matthew 4 and Luke chapter 4. Satan can never take authority over you, but he can whisper those things into your heart that longs to destroy you. He can whisper those things in your ear. This is why the scriptures constantly call them schemes. They are schemes. Satan mimics God and perverts his work. Christians can be accused and deceived and be tempted by Satan. And sometimes we may yield to those temptations, but we never have to. We are told in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, that Jesus has already disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to shame by triumphing over them in the cross. The cross is what gives us victory. You don't have to do anything to win victory over Satan and demons. The victory has been won for you by Jesus. Our challenge is to believe and live in that authority. So, if you're still here and you're like, but I still want to be a demon hunter. What do I got to do? Okay, I will help you in this. You want to be a good demon hunter? How do you actually fight? When Jesus is attacked by Satan in the wilderness, he doesn't argue theology. What does he do? Matthew chapter 4, verse 8 says, again, The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. If you'll notice, I and mean, if you read it, Jesus will, doesn't step in and go, well, how can that be? If I'm sovereign over all things, how could you give me? He doesn't get into a theological debate with Satan and start arguing with him. You know what he does? He quotes scripture. That's what he does. That's what he does. And so if you want to be someone who stands, know your Bible. Know the words that God has written to you. And when some crazy things comes on the screen, because I have seen movies where it says, you know, out of the belly of the beast, the demon shall rise. The Bible and you'd be like, that's not in the Bible. That's stupid. You know? And, and you, because you know the scriptures. I mean, the goal isn't to get to know Satan so well you pick him out. It's to know the scriptures so well that you pick out the lie every time it rears its ugly head. That's how you fight. And I think, again, I, I know I say all this and I make fun of a lot of stuff. But you've got to take care because I do believe Satan is alive. Okay? But you cannot overestimate his power. Do not overestimate his power. Saying that Satan made us do something is a cop-out. It's trying to lay blame somewhere else than where it really lies. James 1.14 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Sin springs out of our hearts. Can Satan tempt you? Of course he can. So can your buddies. Your buddies around you can tempt you all the time. But it's our decision if we give into it. What I always think is really interesting is if we think the devil's schemes are actually so bad, if we're like, oh, the devil is horrible, why are we constantly giving into them? Why do we constantly listen to them? Why do we do this? Why do we so badly want to jump in and grab onto the things that God says will destroy us? We are constantly saying, God, you really don't know the good for my life. Only I do. And by doing that, you show you're a lot more like Satan than Jesus. We are so like him because we think we know better for our lives how to live them than what God has shown to us. We are way more like Satan than we want to admit. And it's very hard to come to terms with that. But if you want to grow in your life, a proper focus on Jesus is where true victory lies. And it's where we must start and where we must always end. Ephesians 6, 10 and 11 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The schemes of the devil. You know what the armor of God is? Righteousness and truth and the gospel. That is what you stand in. And the, and the weapon you get to, like, stab demons in the face, you know what it is? Word of God. The Scriptures. Know your Bible. 1 Peter 5, 8-11 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. In the book of Colossians, what you get is a lot of uh, images of the great battle victories that have been won. In Colossians 1, 13 and 14, it says, He has delivered us, that's you and me, from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What it points to is understanding our victory that we have in Christ. What He has done for us. We do not need to live in fear. We do not need to live in anything that that resembles any less than what He has given to us. Anything less than what He has done. We are a people who stand strong in His might because He came and He lived and He died and He rose from the grave. So all the sins that stand between us and God and us and each other are taken away. We get a true relationship with God to live in His strength and His power and His grace. The word, more than any other in the scripture that explains this victory, is the word grace. Over and over. Grace given to us by God. The Father sent Jesus to redeem us from our old way of life. Jesus lived, died, rose from the grave to bring us out of darkness into light. Live in grace don't give in to the hype and the lies that everybody wants to say to you. You live in grace, knowing the goodness of a God that has rescued and redeemed you. If you've looked at all these stories we've gone through throughout Legends of the Fall, what do we always come back to? Jesus, because it's all about... Yes, Jesus. That's what it's about. I mean, guys, when, when something crazy comes up and it puts its ugly little head in front of you, you've got to understand... That Jesus is the one who has won the ultimate victory. We do not need to live in fear. We do not need to sit down and go, Oh, what if something gets old? You trust Jesus. This is why we talk about communion every week. Communion is the remembrance of what Jesus has done. That's why you break that cracker like his body was broken. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice that represents his blood that was shed for you and me we can lay our lives down and live in the life that he gives and the strength and the power that he provides because he is the one who has saved us. It is all about Jesus' name. The band's going to come up. As they do. We invite you guys to take communion, be some deacons in the back. Uh, maybe, maybe you're in a position in your life today where it's like, I watch too many scary movies and I believe them all. They would love to pray with you about that. Okay? They, they will not make fun of stuff like I do probably as much. I don't know, but as the, the, one of the reasons I do you know, mock and make fun of it a little bit is because I think a lot of people have given it way too much power. And in a sense, it's a little bit laughable because when we understand the God who spoke creation into existence out of nothing by a word, and yet we give a created being this much power, that's laughable. I mean, our God is omnipotent. He knows everything. We trust Him with all of our lives and living and trusting in Him means we really have nothing to fear because our God is that good and that powerful. And if you have any prayer requests, they'd love to pray with you about these things. There's offering boxes on the side wall in the back. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving then is simply part of our worship. Uh, there's some food in the back. Grab something to eat. Don't overstuff yourself because you want to come hum- hungry to the agape meals today. And then, over- and then eat everything and be like, there's no food left. Be like, did our job. Sweet. Uh, so, I mean, understanding and living in community with one another, this is one of the reasons why God saves us and removes our sin, not just between us and him, but us and each other. So we live in these relationships that he calls us to. Um, again, our, our God is good. Live and trust in his great, great strength. Let's pray. thought of this morning. I ask that you would remind us daily. Of your strength and your power and of your victory. That you have given us grace. That you have placed into our hearts and our lives the the power that raised Christ from the dead. And we do not need to be a people who live in fear of anything. But we must be a people who live our lives submitted to you and your goodness. Teach us to trust you. Teach us to call on your name when we are unsure. Teach us to stop trusting in the three pounds of flesh between our ears so much and simply live and walk by faith in what you have called us to. So the world may know the graciousness of our God who has not left us to the devices of our enemy, but has saved us. And brought us near. And given us grace. Teach us to live in that grace and your victory. And to have much joy because of what you have done. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.